Hey everybody, it's Virgil here at the Chapo Annex in Bushwick. Think of it as like a second home that we use for our assignations. And with us today on this beautiful sunny day in Brooklyn is Sam Cedar, host of the Majority Report. Hey Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Virgil. This is uh, this is like a second a second home. Uh, Sam has been kind enough to invite me on his program a few times and, you know, as part of our podcast exchange program, we're having him on. I, uh, after one of these, one of these tapings, when I visited the Majority Report Manor in uh, downtown Brooklyn, uh, Sam and I got to talking about something in his past, a, a kind of, kind of dark chapter in his personal history. And that came up because a few weeks ago, I went on the current affairs podcast mm. uh after months of uh hectoring them into having me on i forgot why i wanted to go on in the first place it's one of those things you know like the the dog catching the bumper yes i understand well you're current yeah i'm current i mean i'm, I'm familiar with current affairs i read a lot of posts on a weekly basis so i am basically qualified to be a pundit right uh, everyone is almost so, so they asked me about my favorite subject me and they got deep into you know the meaning of of chapo right uh you know why is it so successful how does it fit into the socialist movement you know da 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 all that kind of stuff and there's a kind of form question that we get you know that's uh, uh why socialism why is socialism a thing now that all just seemed to come out of nowhere a few years back and i mean i have I have like various answers to that question. I think everything kind of contributes a little bit to that. You know, usually it's around the, the, it's a response to austerity and the financial meltdown. It's a response to the Iraq war. It's especially a lot of young people who grew up in this militarized milieu, you know, da, 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 all, all kinds of things like that. And of course, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were, were very influential on that. But the way he posed the question was, it was like, why is socialist podcasting a thing now? And how come, you know, why come there are no left on the radio, which I did not really have a form answer for, because although I am probably the country's foremost media critic by virtue of co-hosting this show, I don't really know things uh, uh, about the past, you know, outside of, you know, posts. And I, I kind of, kind of stammered my way through it. Kind of tried to fit my answer into that, uh, uh, into that stock answer that I have. Uh, but in reality, you know, I, I never knew why conservative talk radio was such a, you know, big influential thing. And it was, you know, uh, as we wrote in our book. I think it still is. It still absolutely still is. And I, you know, as we wrote in our book, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich was uh, crowned as a, a uh, uh, honorary member of the freshman class of 94 of the, the Republican Revolution class. Rush Limbaugh was. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Newt Gingrich was actually in that Oh, Newt Gingrich. Oh, fuck, Christ. Okay, now we got to restart the whole thing. You already, you already revealed your lack of historical uh, ground. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I read the book, and the book taught me everything I need to know about history. Uh, but like the, the actual, the actual talk radio thing, I mean, the, I've read some various compelling pieces of, uh, compelling arguments about why conservative talk radio was such a big thing. 
uh, is such a big thing. One thesis is that it has a lot to do with car culture. You know, if you're in a, a if you if you live in a, a rural or suburban areas, uh, you necessarily drive a lot and you need something to listen to. Right. Uh, and if you live in an urban area where you take public transit, you know, before there were iPods, you know, you, you didn't really have anything to listen to unless you could listen to Rush Limbaugh on tape or something like that. Really, before Walkman. Before. Uh, but uh, that's why I'm here, to remind you that there was actually something before iPods. But um, Record scratch. Yeah, no, but I, but I, I mean, I think, I think that's part of it in terms of who it appeals to. I also think that it was a a bit of a fluke. I think there's, look, there's a lot more money on the right. And um, the talk radio, conservative talk radio, heavily subsidized in many, in many different ways, not necessarily directly, but it, it, as, as a bank shot. The, the quick answer, and we could really wrap this up in just like two minutes. Okay, that's good uh, for me. I gotta be somewhere. In terms of like why there's a lot more that the left is much more uh, competitive in the podcast world, particularly just sort of like podcast only, as opposed to the podcast of a radio show or something like that. Right. Right. Is because the bar to entry is so low. Um, and the bar to entry on radio is, is, is quite large. Well, um, I'm also thinking of this in terms of audiences. You talk about how right wing radio is so heavily subsidized. Uh, but it also, you know, it also commands big audience, huge audience. I mean, you know, Rush Limbaugh, I mean, in some way, the, you know the the powers that be, the people who control the you know the radio and the advertising and so on and so forth, have to follow where the market is. Surely, oh yeah, but I mean that that market was was you know to a certain extent in terms of like political talk as opposed to just talk radio, which and I think talk radio in and of itself is um, amenable in 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 some respects uh, more to like a broadly more conservative outlook. Um, you know, just if you look at the more generic, like sort of talk radio hosts that came before, uh, Limbaugh, you know, to be, I guess a a talk radio fan, you would probably be a little bit more oriented towards, towards the right, broadly speaking. But with all that said, and I think, you know, part of the reason why I'm here is to dispel the notion that there was no market for left wing AM talk radio. Um, because the fact is, and this is the dirty little secret about Air America, we got very good numbers. I mean, very good uh, ratings. And we just had really bad management. In fact, that understates it because we had a series of bad management. Um, Air America launched on March 30th of 2004. And it collapsed, I believe it was in late 2010. And over the course of, was it 2010 or maybe even, um, maybe late 2009, over the course of those uh, five or so years, there was um, six CEOs and five different owners. Uh, not including a period of time where we were in receivership and there was no owner. Um, and it was an amazing series of people who didn't know what they were doing. Let's go, let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning because most of our listeners were born after 2010 
(laughs) What was Air America? Okay. So now this is actually like really hard. I think honestly for a lot of um, uh, uh, people who are probably listening to appreciate, but in 2004, there was zero left. And I'm using that term broadly Mm -hmm. mass media. There was nothing. The closest thing to it was Phil Donahue. I I mean, you're laughing. It's, I, I mean, he was about as left as it got and mm. uh, on mass media. And he was just left because he was just sort of wimpy. Like it was almost like that was the definition. He was just like a guy who, you know, was overly polite in some way. I mean, you know, he had more uh, politics than that. And you also had Alan Combs. Um, Alan Combs, right, was also uh, on the left. He I was think a, he was a Marxist. Sometime around there, he, he would be the co-host with Sean Hannity on on. And he was basically the, um, for folks who, who uh, have ever seen the Harlem Globetrotters, he was the Washington Wizards. Um, and, and you can imagine where that put him relative to how, you know, where, how uh, expert Sean Hannity was. Uh, for a more current reference, he was the Todd to Sean Hannity's BoJack Horseman. Right, exactly. Okay, so there you go. And, um, and so there was very, there was nothing it, it, on TV. Um, Keith Oberman had, had yet to sort of like emerge. Um, there was democracy now mm. and that was it. And it was all, that was all public access and right. on uh, non-commercial radio. Uh, but that was it. And I remember you had a lot of books. That was when the rise of the great liberal anti Bush book. Well, actually there was only two. There was Al Franken's uh, Lying Liars. Mm. And I think he may have had one before that. Yeah, and there did. was Michael Moore and that Michael was, Moore's book. and that was it. I mean, there was no, there was yet to be, those books did not start coming out until like 2004, uh, largely speaking. And um, because you have to also remember that the Bush years, particularly those first three or four years, was so much in the shadow of 9-11. And there was a real fear. Um, So Air America the idea came up around in like, you know, 2003, they approached Al Franken. They started to build it around Al Franken. They approached Janine Garofalo. I think she was probably the second person who was approached. And, um, Janine had, and I had talked about doing a a radio show, you know, for, for a long time. I was at that time, uh, directing I'm with Busey, which was a comedy central fake reality show out in LA. And, but I had a, wait, that was, uh, what was it called? I I'm with Busey, Gary Busey, about Gary Busey. I yes, vaguely remember. Yes, that. it was a nightmare. But uh, nevertheless, so I was a a you know a comedian, and um, but I had had you know sort of educationally a background in in politics, and had you know done all the internships and that type of thing, and was uh, very um, intensely um, anti-war as the buildup to Iraq was coming, and in fact, the first majority report was actually done on Tom Sharpling's best show on WFMU, which some people may know as a podcast mm-hmm. now. Um, we just he gave me two hours to do it in uh, February of 2003, right before the uh, launch of the Iraq war. And John Benjamin, who voices my show, we went over to New Jersey and we did it live. And um, it was a time where there was no, you had no sense of dissent. Mm-hmm. And, Literally, Janine Garofalo was the only person who was allowed on television to say we shouldn't go to a war with Iraq because 
they wouldn't let anyone else on. And so she was recruited by this organization, Win Without War, because she was the only person they would let on. And they would do that because they'd invite her on, desperate to have her on. Because mm-hmm. she was great for ratings, particularly on like Fox, because they love to see you know young women who are uh, you know uh, uppity yeah. um, get attacked. That is like catnip for them. And so they invite her on. And the first question would be like, how dare you come on here uh, as an actress and, and tell us why we shouldn't go to war? Uh, so Air America launches with uh, Al Franken, uh, Rachel Maddow and Liz Winstead and Chuck D had a show in the morning. Um, and Mark Marin had a show in the early morning with a couple other folks, Al Franken and then Randy Rhodes, who was a, um, a left-wing talker from Florida, but just all local. There was no... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, there was definitely local. Yes, you know, there, was, there was local. Uh, and then uh, after us, uh, in you know, we were uh, 6 to 9 or 7 to 10, I think we started. After us, there was a guy named Mike Malloy, uh, who, again, also had been doing that local stuff. And so the problem was it was started by a guy who told everyone that he had had a brain tumor mm-hmm. and that he had had a revelation that he needed to do something to get, you know, we were losing the messaging war because there was no messenger at all. And um, I mean, there was literally no commercial media. This is like if Felix started a company. Uh, I have a brain tumor. I can't be alone right now. Will you and your comedian friends come to my house and record a, a daily radio program? It was, it was very much like that. It was insanity. And it turns out the guy was... Um, lying about how much money he had raised. It mm-hmm. took a while to find this out. Uh, it basically came to a head and people can watch this element of the, of the period of, of air America. There was a, there was a documentary called maybe I think it was left of the dial or something like that on HBO. My understanding is that a lot of us had not gotten paid, but you know, I was coming from the sitcom world and I was like, I don't really care. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I was just going to do this. You were rolling in the Gary Busey money. I was rolling in. I had done a lot of sitcom uh, as an actor. I was actually rolling in a lot of dough at that time. And um, we were just like, we need to do something for the next six months before this election. And so a lot of us had, you know, had checks that were bounced and they would just say like, well, there was some confusion and blah, blah. And it all came to a head when um, Franken, who had not been paid for a long time, the guy sent him a sent his consigliari with a big envelope uh, that supposedly had all the receipts for the checks that they had, and he opened it up and it was just newspaper, <laughs> random newspaper clippings like that old, like back in the day in the eighties, you could be walking down the street of, of New York and somebody would come up and sell you a VCR and it was shrink wrapped and you put your hand in where the slot was and they had just. You got it home, you opened it up, you found out it was just like a piece of plastic that you could put your hand in. And oh. it was basically one of those. And the whole thing um, was about to come crashing down, but a new set of owners stepped in and, and then a new set of owners and a new set of owners. But all the while, our ratings were great. And not only were the ratings great across the country, right? I mean, because when Janine and I would do our show six to nine, we were in New York and we were beating when it was seven to nine, we were across two time slots, three to six and, and, and six to nine. We were beating Laura Ingram, Savage and Levin mm. who were on RK, uh, uh, WROR and, um, and, uh, uh, WABC. And 
the problem was is that nobody knew how to monetize this because all the throw-offs from the radio business, they knew how to sell to a conservative audience. Mm -hmm. They knew how to sell to a sports radio audience. But what we were doing was a fundamentally different uh, beast because it was attracting different listeners. Now let's go back a second. You, uh, I, if I get a brain tumor and I say I want to make a radio network, what does that actually mean? How does that, how does that syndication process? Work? Well, that's the thing is it was the first attempt at making a radio network in about twenty twenty five years, and um, it meant basically going and making deals with different affiliates around the country. In some instances, you could lease the station what they call LM, LMAs. In other instances, you would just make a deal with them, which would be something to the effect of like, okay, we're going to supply you this programming. And uh, we have in every radio hour, 22 minutes of ad time. Some instances they would say like, you get to keep all 22 minutes if you carry you know, uh, our product at first, or you get half of it for your local sales. So they found... There are a whole bunch of station owners who said, yes, we want to run Treason Radio. Exactly. And, and it, you know, they weren't all great affiliates. They weren't the biggest uh, sticks, as they say, powerful. But we got across the country in a lot of places. And, and I think this guy also promised a lot of people some money that never materialized. And when he was questioned with stuff, he'd say, you know, I had a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really can carry you for about three or four or five months solid when you respond that way. But uh, at one point, obviously it, it falls apart. And so we lost sort of the Chicago affiliate that very early on because somebody was like, Hey, this doesn't smell right. Um, we had some people leave because things didn't smell right. And, you know, but a lot of us were in it because it was important. There was no dissent. There was no mechanism for dissent in a mass media way. The internet was, there was no YouTube. Mm-hmm. We would stream, and at their peak, Al Franken, I think, at his peak in any given five minutes, would get somewhere around 30,000 contemporaneous listeners, which now sounds, you know, still relatively impressive, actually, on a daily basis. Uh, but it was done with real on virtual dial up networks. Now, I don't know if you know what real is, but it was basically a virus that was put on your uh, Oh, real. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you could barely hear anything. And so to have 30,000 people at, you know, at any given time listening to this was a real feat. There was no way that we understood how to monetize that, at least the, uh, the management. And the biggest story I think can, can exemplify why it was such a different animal and how they didn't understand where this money, where the money was. Very early on um, in New York, the Rockettes, maybe this might have been 2005, uh, but it were maybe late 2004, the Rockettes went on strike. And their union, after a couple of weeks, I think it was, put an ad on our uh, New York affiliate. And within 24 hours, the owners, I think of whatever it is, 30 Rock or whatever that the, the, the management basically gave major concessions to them to come back to the table under the only condition that they take the ad off the air. They were that terrified of Liz Winstead. It was, well, I'm on some level, Um, (laughs) but it was that the, we were talking to activists. People were sending us money in envelopes and no one, you know, and what a, a salesperson who was of the movement 
would have understood or what a decent salesperson who had not been working in radio, which is about like your D plus level student uh, with all due respect um, would have understood is like, wait a second, we should be selling to unions. Mm -hmm. We should be selling to activists. We should be getting a testimonial from that union going to every union in the country. And they just didn't get that. Um, And, you know, we had offers from, you know, tech shops like that ended up working for Obama's campaign and whatnot to go and help us target listeners. But the radio people, they're like, no, we got to do a contest and send out flyers. I mean, it was like, yes. I mean, you have to understand, like they just didn't know what they had. And it, and it took five years and, and multiple managements to ultimately kill it. And it ended up dying with a lineup that included Lionel, who was just most recently uh, in the news for being a uh, 4chan uh, QAnon uh, uh, guy. Wait, who? Lionel. Hutz? Just, there's no last name. He was just wow. this dude cool. who was doing, like, you know, independent radio. The, the last iteration of, of Air America was a complete uh, grift. Like, I literally had one executive who I would see him and he would do this from the sting to me, like the old, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, finger on the nose indicating that everybody's on the take. And it was just, it was uh, an incredible learning experience to see the whole thing fall apart. Wait, so there, who else was in the last line? There's Lionel and... Montel Williams. Neat. And then I don't know who else. Everyone else had been jettisoned. Marin and I had done a show in that last iteration that was literally resigned to the break room where the vending machines were and it was just online and, and, and folks can actually check out some of that on YouTube still, but, um, it was a vending machine in the shot at first we did it cause we wanted to harass the people coming into the room and then no one would come in when we were there. So, <laughs> but it, um, it was a series of, of, of management failures. And then they didn't realize like then podcasts started happening. YouTube started happening we were using Justin TV for live video, which ultimately became uh, Twitch. Twitch, And I can tell you this. When we launched, if you went to airamericaradio.com, the only thing on that site was a picture of a microphone that was not, it didn't, you could, you could put your brow, you could put your mouse on it, but there was nothing to click. You can't click the microphone. There was nothing. Okay. And so uh, I had set up a movable type blog. I had my sister do it. And we were getting 30,000, 40,000 uniques an hour during the show because it was the only place people could go. Mm. Um, And we were, our show was very much, um, you know, I thought like there's going to be a huge fight to see who's going to get Atrios on the show (laughs) or, uh, you know, uh, talking points memo or, uh, you know, Marcus Melitsis and none of the people there were even aware of what was going on online, which was the only place there was any dissent for, um, yeah. and, and where the left was, you know, uh, congregating. And by the time that we, we finished in 2010, the last round of, of, of management had said to me, cause I was, I kept getting fired from them. And then, and then they were, afraid to actually go through with it because there would be these petitions that would be circulated. You should have told them you had a brain tumor. I should have said the brain tumor thing. I should have gone on with that, but, um, this is good advice for the listeners too. Yes. We've already gotten something they can medical use. calamities 
can take you, can buy you like three to six months. Um, and imagine if you're just working and not the person who's supposedly funding the whole thing. Uh, it could buy you maybe six to six to eight years. There's not a guarantee. Um, this is not medical advice. But they it had, is legal advice. We are lawyers, and this is formally legal advice. They had so little understanding of the internet that the last guy, even in 2009, had said to me, this guy, Bennett Zier, who had come from, again, a Clear Channel guy. He was the CEO. I checked his donations. Mitt Romney <laughs> in 2008. Like people make this mistake that the the failure of Air America was a function of they didn't go in there for business. They only went in there for politics. The fact is not a single owner of that company understood either. They weren't there for the politics. They weren't there for the business. They were there for some third reason, all of them, uh, that ranged from wanting to be part of like uh, the, you know, we had a Silicon Valley, the guy from Real Networks. Um, millionaire wanted to be part of like the Hollywood elite and wanted to hang out at like Ariana Huffington parties. Um, Mark Green's brother, who is a major uh, real estate guy in, um, in New York wanted, I think a job in the Clinton administration that he thought was going to happen. Mm. Uh, chairing HUD. Uh, we had another guy who was a largely a trust fund baby, uh, elderly who I think wanted to, prove that he could run a business. Um, I mean, it was always a third reason that really had nothing to do with either. And so well, I hope everyone got their dreams. Everyone lost. Damn. Uh, except sucks. for Rachel Maddow. Yeah, good for her. Um, and, uh, and ultimately Marin, I think did pretty yeah, well. Doing well. And, and I, you're you know, doing, my, you're doing my very well, uh, uh, how's Ella Franken doing? Franken, uh, I don't think he's doing, uh, what he wants to do right now. He kind of uh, fell off the map after Air America fell apart. Uh, for a brief period of time, yeah. he was in the uh, spotlight. Yeah. Um, and uh, less so now. But um, and, and there was this myth around where you'll see people talk about there's no room for left-wing ra- uh, radio. If we were doing, I, I, I mean, my guess would be that someone smart will come in at one point with the radio business dying and will create a network that is just playing podcasts and will change the industry. The industry is going to change. Mm-hmm. Why are you so confident about that? Because it's uh, like, it, obvious. It's just a, it's just a question of um, it, one. Look, there's no doubt in my mind that if there were three low, like mid, mid size AM talk radio stations in Michigan and three in Wisconsin that were playing any number of left wing shows that, those states would have gone for Hillary Clinton. I mean, you're only talking about, uh, you know, combined, you know, less than 30,000 people. And um, talk radio motivates people and, and gets people out. And, um, and so I think at one point, uh, somebody will see the efficacy of it. But the problem part of it is, is that it tends to be a medium that's much more populist. Mm-hmm. The populist agenda on the left does not, align as well with money in the way that it has been on the, on the right. And so there was a certain, we never got money from, let's say the democracy Alliance. We never got Soros money. Mm. And I think part of it is, is just not perceived as sexy. I think there's, you know, I have a whole theory about the way that the left funds things, but at one point it's just going to become 
a very effective means in which to monetize podcasts. Well, I, I guess what I'm driving at is, you know, hasn't the radio industry changed a bit in the past decade? Isn't the story just monopolization? Well, that monopolization existed prior to the past decade. Doesn't I mean, it accelerate? Clear channel. I, I think to a certain extent, but not, I, I mean, I think Clear Channel had bought up everything. Yeah. And, um, and so we would get on like the third Clear, cha- uh, you know, Clear Channel station, fourth channel in, uh, in any type of market. And so you would have a much worse signal, frankly. And so you couldn't compete in the same way. Um, that has happened, you know, and so you get everything is automated. But in the meantime, the Heritage Foundation, all these slush funds still pay a lot of these hosts. Locally, they get, you know, you can write on Town Hall for an obscene amount of money, you know, mm-hmm. uh, relative to other websites. I guess what I'm asking is, is that, does that opportunity still exist? Are there enough stations that you could organize that you could make deals with to run some kind of nationally syndicated left radio? Well, it depends on how big of a network. I mean, you could make a network out of, out of 10 stations, right? I mean, now it's also much cheaper that you could do it through IP instead of doing it through a satellite. Uh, up. There's, there's a, the technology has progressed so rapidly. And in some ways, you, you would use radio now as a means in which to, um, like I say, advertise a podcast almost. Mm-hmm. And it would be just another distribution mechanism you know, some of your advertising would be sort of direct response stuff. Uh, some of it would be like, we're only going to play one episode of uh, Chapo mm-hmm. on Tuesday. But if you want Thursday's episode, you know, we'll go to Patreon or yep. uh, whatever it is. Um, certainly, you know, like f- from Chapo's perspective, sure, you can have our programming if we, as long as we don't have to edit it in some fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Edit it down to like five minutes. A thing. quick five minutes. Yeah, yeah, five minutes. That would be acceptable by FCC standards. We'd have like a, we'd do like a Vic Burger version of Vic, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, just dead air and us going, uh. <laughs> that is basically what I've built my show on. But, but, that, but that audience is still there. That, that terrestrial radio audience that would listen to left radio. I, I, I mean, I think so. I mean, people have so many more options now. Well, they have so many more options, but I mean, you know, nevertheless, there's still a vacuum. I mean, mm-hmm. we had 16 hours of programming a day. I don't know that people can fill that up uh, with, with just podcasts and music. I think like, look, there's a convenience to being able to go in and just turn it on. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, uh, there's no bar to entry with radio. We still have 95% of the homes in the country uh, or 95% of the people in the country are exposed to radio. Uh, once a week at least. My God. Um, yeah, Those it, waves. it's incredibly, exactly. The, uh, and, and you think about the numbers. I mean, you know, now if a podcast gets 500,000 downloads per episode, <clears throat> that's, that's going to put you in the top 1% less of podcasts. Mm. Um, to have 500,000 people listen to a radio show is not that huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking, which, you know, the, this whole premise that, uh, the podcasting is the domain of of socialists now. It's 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 the preferred uh, far left platform, and that it's socially influential. I still think it's a subcultural thing right now. And as well, there's something to be said about you know we put something on the radio, and that's that's beamed out to everyone, whether you like it or not. That's just that's just on you. You if you're turning the dial, 
People find it by accident. Yes. And with a podcast, you actually have to do something. You have to cultivate this and seek it out. Yep. And there's a, there's an extra decision-making process yes. involved. There's steps. Yes. It's, it's a huge difference. I mean, we, uh, I don't think we could end uh, the strike for the, for the Rockets. No. I mean, I mean, I think that really is, um, I used to have candidates on, uh, on my show, uh, and could actually impact like their fundraising. Mm -hmm. We would have books on people writing books and could move it up literally to the top three on the Amazon rankings. You know, in that hour, um, we could do that on radio. You just don't have that type of ability. And I think like, you know, um, you know, first of all, people did not identify as socialists when, when I just saw a clip of, uh, of Bernie Sanders on the floor, uh, getting into it with Duke Cunningham because Duke Cunningham had, had basically said something about homos in the military. Yeah. Uh, and Duke Cunningham ultimately, uh, I think ended up in jail because yep. of a scandal, but, um, but he kept maligning, uh, Bernie as a liberal, which of course now the, the, it would be a criticism from the left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that time, like I had people call into my radio show saying you're a liberal. And, and I used to identify as being to the left of liberal. Yeah. But I would say I'm on a, we advertise as a liberal talk radio network. Of course I am. Because you just admitted it <laughs> on air. And I said, yes, no, that's, of course, <laughs> that's the whole premise of what we're doing here. Like that's, that was what it was just 15 years ago. And so, um, things have changed so dramatically. I mean, you, you, you said all the positive, or I should say the proactive reasons why, you know, the austerity, the 2008, the financial crisis, um, the, the, the problems that we're having in our society in terms of like student debt and whatnot. Yeah. Well, the other reason is, is that like sufficient number of people have died off that socialism just does not have the the same implications to these people as people who like you know thought in 1955 that we were going to be blown up by uh the Soviet Union i mean it's it's really you know it's like it's the equivalent of when they used to attack obama as having chicago style politics delicious Deep dish politics. Exactly. No one knew what no. the fuck that was supposed no, to mean. Nobody like, what does that mean? Still nobody knows what the fuck the right is talking about. Nobody knows what Chicago style politics means except for people who are like well into their, you know, 70s now. And mm. so they thought they were talking to, and that's what's happening, I think, with socialism to a large extent. They they just, the, the right does not realize that that does not have the same resonance. But the, you know, this socialist moment, this has come from below. This hasn't come from the mass media because, totally. as, as you observe, there's no, you know, there's no real left voices there. No. Uh, and but but you still have a lot of faith in the idea that something like talk radio can motivate people, can aid in organizing and things like that. Oh, without a doubt. I, I mean, I, I think honestly, without a doubt, because you're just reaching much more people. And frankly, you're reaching people. Who I mean, I, I I would bet that your your audience still is a fairly narrow demographic. I mean, we're talking about not not you know we're not talking a million people, right? Um, your audience would be a fairly narrow demographic. People who listen to radio probably are in the lowest income brackets of any media that is consumed in this country. Um, because it's the cheapest, it's the cheapest thing to do. You, you pay a very small amount to buy a radio, 
Maybe mm-hmm. it's already in your car and, or maybe somebody's listening to it at work and you don't have to pay anything. Yeah. And you don't need a computer. You don't need, um, you know, you don't need all the things you need to, to learn about technology. Yeah. In, if in I, if, if I'm driving a truck, I don't have to uh, stop and load up uh, a podcast and plug everything in and, have, and whatever it, I just turn it on. Exactly. I mean, um, uh, I have a good friend who was an uh, independent truck driver who wanted to listen to the show, and it was, it was a big deal for him to get you know, that kind of data where he could, he could uh, stream it or download it. He'd have to wait to truck stops, and it wasn't... Um, it's a pain in the ass. It was a pain in the ass. And you know, I mean, I think like, it's still there's a big bar to entry with podcasts. And you know, I also think that like, from an audience perspective, there are less and less... Um, there's going to be more and more opportunity to watch stuff. Because less and less people are going to be driving, particularly in the millennial generation, uh, either because they're on public transport or whatnot. And so there's going to be more opportunity just to sit and, 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 and watch of, it stream. A lot of people don't leave their houses now. A lot of people don't leave their houses for work in the same way. I mean, I think radio still has a big, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh still talks to 20 million people. Yeah. And um, yeah. he's not as prominent right now because you have a talk radio host essentially is the president Mm -hmm. of the United States. There's a real divide there between what's going on in the right-wing talk radio world and what everyone else is familiar with. Because I I don't know. I don't keep tabs on it. I think some people at Media Matters are paid to keep tabs on all of these psychotics. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh got got exposed in many respects by them. And, And it was important. And there was a lot of like, for a long time, it was like, don't pay attention to these people. I mean, I yeah. used to get a lot of grief uh, on the radio for like, you know, doing stories. We would get grief, you know, I would see criticism from sort of the mainstream media journalists on like, all you're doing is you're talking about some state legislator in, uh, in Mississippi who wants to make abortion illegal or wants to <laughs> outlaw, you know, like, and then all of a sudden it, you know, this, they want to make uh, uh, unions basically illegal. Then five years later, you know, Scott Walker's doing it. Yeah, that's metastasized. Um, that's the way that they would roll this shit out. And they're doing it now. Like, yeah. literally, they're doing it this week. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of value in that. And radio um, radio was a great way to sort of, uh, of get that message out. It's the, you know, the vector of the plague. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, it, and it, it's... It, it still remains the lowest bar to 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 access. You know, a lot of liberals are are, are they have a lot of angst over over right wing media, right? About you know, right wing talk radio and Fox News and all this stuff. And you know, there's there's a uh, there's a kind of controversy I think on the left about you know, just a kind of cause and effect thing, right? You know, is this is has Fox News and talk radio brainwashed people or? Is there, or is that just too easy an explanation? And there's, there's something else. There's a more, you know, material or structural reason for uh, why your grandparents are buying Iraqi dinars. Um, I don't know. Those are mutually exclusive. I mean, I think um, you could say that the material and structural um, uh, context basically weakens the immunity system Mm -hmm. and allows that to, but I also do think that there is something to be said that, that frankly, that it, that, that it has had a a serious impact on the, on the body politic. I mean, there was a reason why politicians would go on and, and, you know, I remember covering where, where congressmen would go on to apologize to Rush Limbaugh 
for saying anything that was remotely critical to him 15 <laughs> years ago. And, uh, and that was a function of like the, the power that he commanded and you started to see talking points. And, and I know I can tell you 15 years ago and their audience is not, um, is not necessarily made up of people who are on the losing side of this structural and material battle. Uh, frankly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I can tell you that 15 years ago I could predict what we would see on, on Fox news by listening to the talk radio that I could predict, you know, arguments and they were word for word what was on, uh, on talk radio. And so I think it's easy to underestimate when you're hearing one narrative and look, if you go across the country, Fox news, this is the other thing that people I don't think understand has so much more clearance than an MSNBC, even to some extent CNN now, uh, or equal to CNN and has in, in, and because of the nature of it is, is played in places. So like for a long time, there was half as many homes in the country that had access to MSNBC as Fox on their cable systems. Um, and part of that was just a function of, of, of how, uh, Murdoch leveraged it and where they perceived their audience to be. And, um, I think it's made a big difference. I really do. So you think it is possible to do another air America to make a populist left radio or, or perhaps even that that might be inevitable just because of the, the audience there and the market conditions. I'm shocked that it hasn't happened. Uh, you know, and be careful about what you wish for, because I'm sure there's some would-be impresario listening to this. I mean, for God's sakes, some of our listeners have impersonated a 90-year-old former senator based on something Felix said offhandedly. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, uh, if anybody wants to uh, show up, just don't use the old I've got a brain tumor line because I'm, uh, I'm completely... Well, what do you need to do that? Because, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Means TV, which is a very, very ambitious project yeah. to make a left streaming service. And this also seems like a, a very ambitious pro uh, project that could actually, I, I mean, I'm convinced that it could actually provide, you know, bear real fruits, politically speaking, uh, in addition to being, you know, a, a profitable enterprise, uh, especially now in an election year where you have you know, 24 Democratic candidates, it looks like, all of whom are going to want to go on your shows and advertise. Right. Uh, so what, you know, what, what needs to be done to do that? You alluded to earlier, uh, there's a kind of left, uh, the way the left does business. Oh, well, the way that the, the left funds things is very different than the way that right funds things. And the left has fewer uncles writing checks. They have fewer uncles. That's true. And they're less inclined on some level because a lot of times what the left wants to do is take their money, not just in the form of a donation, but in the form of uh, confiscatory taxes. <laughs> and I mean, that's just the reality, right? And they want to regulate the way that they make their money. Um, but even that aside, I think there is a mentality on the right that is, that is much more amenable to like venture. We're going to fund a bunch of different things operationally and see which one uh, does well on the left. I think, frankly, I think what makes people on the left and I'm using that term very broadly, right? I mean, you could be center left and still be included here. The, the, the things that makes them, that places them uh, on that part of the spectrum, I think they tend to want to have their money provide them with a sense of creativity. So, and I think you can find if you speak to people who work in foundations or whatnot, the funding usually comes in with, I want to do the Sam Cedar project to do this project. I want to see a beginning, middle and end to it. 
and I want to do this special thing. I'm going to fund this. What you do not get on the left with these organizations is somebody coming in and saying, like, I'm just going to fund your operations. So you're just going to pay everybody, and uh, at one point that money, you know, we'll just take you, we'll buy, instead of something I can point to and say, that's the thing that I created, the thing that's, uh, you know, paying for uh, this project or that project, uh, I paid for six months of operations. It's just not as attractive to the left-wing funders. Mm -hmm. Um, And radio is just not that sexy. You know, it's very operational. But I will say this, as opposed to means TV, audio is just significantly cheaper to produce. And the cost in what I'm talking about is a distribution cost, the co- which is the opposite, really, in many respects, for what something like Means TV doing. They're doing it from a production standpoint. So my cost as a, in terms of distribution become very fixed. I'm setting up the pipes, and then the pipes exist, period. And I know exactly how much it's going to cost me in February, March, April, May. It doesn't matter. I'll have to reinvent the wheel every time Mm -hmm. because the audio is already to a large extent already exists. The the product already exists. It's the opposite for what means TV is doing every day. They need to come up with what's another, uh, you know, type of compelling, um, uh, a content to develop. And it's a different challenge. Yes. Um, and in some ways it's more sexy and could uh, attract more funding, uh, because on radio, it's basically like, Oh, you want me to pay for, um, some IP machines that are going to beam radio in and I'm going to pay rent for a, um, a 15,000 watt radio station in, uh, somewhere in Wisconsin. That's nothing I can talk about at my dinner parties. Uh, I can't show them anything. Um, it's a hard thing to do, but from a business standpoint, there's, there's an opportunity to make some money or at the very least, Someone, you know, had a, 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 a decent amount of money and was looking for like, you know, not particularly stellar returns. Well, you also buy political clout. I mean, I think there's that perception, but like, I think there was a perception of some of those owners that they were doing that. But the problem they ran into was like, I can't tell my host what to do. Sure. Sure. And so like, you know, I mean, if I was to set this up, I would be setting it up in such a way that I would be going to pre-existing shows and saying like, I'm going to make a distribution deal with you. I may monetize it locally. I may monetize it by selling, you know, ads for you to carry or something to that effect. You're going to get the benefit and that you're going to expand your audience and you're going to monetize it. But I'm not going to go to you and say like, listen guys, I really, you know, like Kamala Harris, you really should. But that's the thing. You, you don't have to interfere with the editorial content to, leverage what you have to, to leverage ownership of something like that um, for instance the the owner of air america who wanted to work in the clinton administration well if mark you, green if you that was mark green well stephen green was his brother, his brother. and he installed mark green uh in and mark oh, green couldn't get himself right. out of a, a paper bag um, i forgot mark green was involved with it yes it was not good right well i'm not saying he succeeded Oh, no, he failed in this. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that there are I mean, I think there's a reason why uh, someone like Jeff Bezos buys The Washington Post. And I think it's uh, you know, an interesting book. And I, I, I try to talk about this to everyone uh, when I'm talking about, you know, issues in the media is uh, The Boys on the Bus by Timothy Krause. Have you ever read that? Mm. It's uh, he puts forward this thesis, which I mean, I'm not 100 percent sold on it, but it just really it's always stuck with me that 
all of these, every newspaper, every small town little paper in the 70s would send a political correspondent to follow the campaigns. Right. But those correspondents would, you know, they would write their own articles, but it was always cribbed from the AP or the New York Times or, you know, Reuters, whatever. Uh, and they'd be looking over the shoulder of the, the AP yes. guy, you know, waiting for the headline because they knew that if they wrote something about, you know, what McGovern said or, or, or what have you uh, in a speech, if they wrote something that was substantially different from what the, was on the front page of the New York Times or what the what was coming out of the AP wire, their editor would chew them out. So right. why even go through that expense of sending a political reporter to the campaign trail? That's what, what, that's what happens on cable television, too, that same dynamic. Right, right. So why, why even bother when you can just, you know, you can just print the AP articles? And uh, the answer that Timothy Krause puts forward, his, his thesis is that it's so that these small-time owners can get information for themselves. I, I mean, I think that's... I, I mean, I... I think that is accurate, but I don't think that that is the dynamic that happens with the 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 radio. I mean, I I just don't think that happens on the left in the same way. Well, there's also there's there's also even if you're not actually manipulating the editorial content, there's maybe an implicit well, threat th that you might. I I I can tell you this: it would come in who you assemble. But beyond that, it's almost impossible because here's the thing none of these people are going to listen to three hours a day or to 16 hours a day. It's just not going to do it. Now there are individual stations. I can tell you that like, for instance, uh, I do a weekend radio show that's still on terrestrial. And I think we're probably going to wrap it up from terrestrial uh, because it's just not a business anymore. We the podcast, but it's called ring of fire radio. It's three hours uh, a weekend. I know that I'm not carried on Chicago because of critiques that I've had of democratic candidates. Hmm. Uh, from years ago. And, and so on, on that more micro level, but in terms of like, you know, um, the actual policing, the content, it's just not the same dynamic because it, first of all, they're just not, you know, people used to say like, are they, are they keeping you from saying certain things? I'm like, mm -hmm. they don't listen. <laughs> like there's nobody whose job it is to sit and listen to the show and take notes. Nobody knows what I'm saying. You know, at one point, one, someone asked me if I got fired by Mark Green. I think it was actually um, the Mondo Weiss people because I was critical of Israel, um, you know, which you did not hear critique of Israel on any mass media at that time. Uh, not that you hear it really uh, <laughs> yeah, that much right. now. But, um, and I was like, I don't think they have any clue of what I've been saying about Israel. I just don't think that they paid attention to it. And um, uh, I, 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 I mean, I think largely that's the case. Um, and it just takes too much work. And there's just not as much infrastructure as there is in a newspaper. Like, there's no editorial. It's just mm -hmm. my team. So you don't think that would be a, a potential impediment to a mass populist left radio network? Um, I think the biggest impediment is money. Like, who would be interested in something like that where it's like, here's the money. You go do it. Mm -hmm. I will get no acclaim. You get profit from it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there will be some profit, but this is not, even radio as it exists now is not a hugely profit. That's why it has to be so um, uh, uh, concentrated and amassed. Yeah. Uh, the, the margins are very small. So this is not, you know, it's, uh, this is not something where, you know, if you have money and you're looking to make money, you're going out into uh, the tech world to get like a 10 times 
you know, a 10 X they say, or a hundred X uh, possible investment, not uh, a, you do know, they, but they don't do, do they do live reads on radio? Sure. Is live reads, I've, from what I've told, we don't, you know, we obviously don't have advertising here on Chapo, but for what I've told from friends who have podcasts and they do live reads, that that makes a ton of money for an audience, which you agree is much smaller than a radio audience. Absolutely. And if those, uh, um, and those reads, I mean, they do the same ads that I do on my podcast. Uh, I hear on right wing talk radio, mm-hmm. um, similar companies. They because it's uh, they measure it through coupon codes, and so they get a sense of what the return is. Um, and the live reads that are done on a uh, podcast would still have the same sort of um, value. On a, on a radio. Or even more so if the audience is larger. Conceivably. Which presumably it it's, would be. I mean, it's different because I do a live read. Someone's on a device where they could actually do it right in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to if I'm in my car driving on the radio. Which is why I think these companies are coming up and they're trying to make proprietary apps and uh, uh, for, for podcast networks to make the advertising more efficient. But I also yep. think that's going to be a failure because that just l- limits your audience so severely. I... I I think that we are closer to the peak of podcasting than 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 people uh, imagine. I don't think so. I think the good times are going to roll forever. This is like newspapers at the year two thousand one. Exactly. Up and up. We're going to go uh, buy a new fucking office in Times Square. I I think that uh, YouTube and 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 video things are going to be. Um, Ascended. I don't know that you're going to get less podcasting, but I just don't think that the ceiling is as um, as high as as people imagine. Well, it's different ways to consume content. I mean, like just the, just the way that people listen to things. I mean, I I think for a lot of the videos that are just so so popular on YouTube, I mean, most of that is just not there for. There's no visual element to that. People just put it on like they would put on a podcast because you're just listening to a, a fucking reactionary white guy ranting into his dash cam. I think that's exactly right. But I think uh, people are going to be just hanging out in the video medium more because every third thing they want to watch is actually going to have to actually look at. Well, I mean, I think, I think Twitch is kind of the way forward because of just that interactivity where you're not, I'm not just sitting and watching, I'm also typing and calling this person a, a racial slur, right. uh, which is essentially what most viewers want. The, uh, listen, of course, that was what we were sold a long time ago with this, all this cable. But that was, you know, so aversion to advertising, I think, would be one possible impediment because, like, the, you know, the appeal of radio is that it's, it's free. It's free thing. It's easy. And, you know, I don't, I don't have to direct someone to go to a website to, to give me money or anything like that. I just have advertising. And I don't know if, if a populist left radio program wants to do, you know, live reads for gold coins and rascal scooters. I, I mean, I won't do rascal scooters and gold coins. Uh, I mean, I would. What the hell? Uh, but I'll do. I'll do other products. But yes, but you don't need as much advertising the thing because about the, the thing because about- you do have the on demand. I mean, that was. I mean, that's the, basically the model is going to be. You're instead of the the network is going to be more about the distribution and that each show is going to monetize in their own way. Like it would be just valuable to uh, to you guys to put your show on this network and get an extra 50,000 listeners mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you are going to convert whatever percentage to uh, paying for the other, uh, other episode. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, if the rest of the stuff I have on that network is not offensive to you, you're going to be like, there's no sweat off our back. We don't even right. do anything. Uh, 
you know, as long as I don't put you uh, next to, you know, I don't know, um, uh, you know, Eric Garland's podcast or whatever. I don't, friend of the show. Friend of the show, whatever it is. But the, the thing is about the mobility scooters is Medicare pays for it. They show you how to get Medicare to pay for it. It's basically the Cloward Piven strategy. There's a lot of stuff that works like that. Uh, Chris, do you want to jump in and ask a question if there's anything? Yeah. Hey, so I would like to ask a question. So as much as radio is the prevalence of the right, um, you know, people like Limbaugh or Ben Shapiro are entertainers first and foremost, and then deliver, you know, whatever their reactionary ideology is as part of that entertainment. I guess my, my question is why has that kind of ideological messaging been throughout the history of radio, both from Air America to podcasts, the purveyance of comedians. Like, why is it that, you know, from Janine, why was it Janine Garofalo's responsibility to be the only person allowed on TV to to give dissent to this? Um, I think that there's obviously value in delivering I, this left ideology through comedy. This is what we do on the show. I think it's a great way to uh, sugar the pill, I guess it is, uh, make it go down. And I think that, you know, we're all good at it uh being funny and delivering these kinds of messages but it's it's interesting that there's never really been a figure i mean even al franken who was a comedian first and then right. and then became like a host commenter you know i guess why is it so often left to comedians to be these kinds of figures or hosts on the left i mean there are some non-comedian rush limbaugh type figures on the left well i guess maddow would be the the, the yeah, person maddow is like that i mean uh you know chris hayes is like that i mean i mean a lot of those people on on cable but even on radio there are examples uh you know tom hartman you know uh randy rhodes uh was w- w- was like that i mean i think obviously there would be more on the right there are some like Steven Crowder, for instance, right? I mean, they, they exist on the right. It's an asterisk on a lot of these guys. Well, but my point is, is that it's the reason why there's not more on the right is just they're not very good at being funny. Yeah. Um, and and you'll so, get a lot more failed comedians who. Yeah, I think so. Talkers. I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, but Dave Rubin, for instance, I mean, but, uh, the, you know, I think it's just these are people who. This medium is not just about delivering policy prescriptions. I mean, you know, people listen to Richard Wolf's uh, podcast and he's, you know, is uh, not necessarily that funny. Uh, but um, I, I, I can tell you this, though. The reason why the framing of Janine had that responsibility was this literally because no one, you were not allowed. They would not book any people, whether it was like, Members of Win Without War, former, you know, Scott Ritter, a former, um, you know, uh, weapons inspector. Janine had to be recruited because that was their last ditch effort to get the word out that we should wait for the weapons inspectors to, to, to come out. I mean, so, yeah, and maybe another way to phrase that is that they wouldn't allow anybody who is quote unquote serious on um, that's right. mass media to, to deliver those messages. Not to say that Janine wasn't good at what she did doing that and wasn't serious in her own way, but, you know. From the perspective of mass media, she wasn't. You a couldn't serious, put. You couldn't unquote, put expert. Messenger. I mean, I remember Janine was put up against like some P. You know, so some like like uh, you know, Brookings Institute or someone like that. You know, some you know, uh, Doctor uh, Janet uh, Phillips. Uh, you know, who who had written three books on you know, and and Janine was there to debate her. And you know, to Janine's credit, it was like 
what do you do? I mean, can you imagine you are aware that you're the only person, maybe you and like Mike Farrell, who used to be a mash, were the only people who were allowed to go on television who could get booked on cable television and give the anti-war. But you know you're walking into a buzzsaw where you're very the very thing that is allowing you to get booked is going to be used as a club against you. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine that amount of responsibility? Like you feel like it's it's really terrifying to think of, of, of an ecosystem where there are no left anti-war voices in the mass media while a Republican administration is plainly inexorably setting the groundwork for a war in the Middle East. I mean, but it's good. We'll never have to be in that situation again. Well, I'm telling you, it is so much better now. And, and, and I will say this, when Janine did that stuff, when we did Air America, and you got to remember, there's no social media, largely, we were roundly criticized and ridiculed by our peers. Um, you know, not excessively, there was no medium to do that. But people are like, what are you doing? And, you know, the thing that I think people don't fully appreciate who didn't live through that era in doing what we do now is... Uh, you were completely isolated. You know, now, like, I mean, then it was like, why are you doing this? And I would go and have dinner with friends and I would turn into this, like, I would just feel like some type of monster. Like, you know, people, it's like, did you hear that thing about, uh, and then I would go, oh, you don't know half of it (laughs) and spew all this stuff and then just realize that everyone's looking at me like I'm some type of lunatic. And now those same people are constantly texting me with stuff that like, have you seen this, this, and this? It's a very different environment. Uh, and I think largely it's because of social media and because, uh, you know, uh, the way that we get our news. Uh, Sam, wrapping things up, uh, top three favorite roles. Top three favorite roles? Yes. Uh, most of them have not been seen by people. Uh, you're talking about ones that I performed. Yes. I had the opportunity to do a pilot with uh, Nancy McKeon, who was Joe in Facts of Life. And uh, well, we made Michael out. McKeon. No, 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 sadly, no. Um, that one was interesting. I was also in a C. Thomas Howell movie. I was thrown through a plate glass window. So that was pretty good. And just because there's a slight chance, um, I can get work from it. I'll say Hugo, uh, from Bob's burgers Ah. because, um, they need to be reminded that I should be called in soon to do some work. Uh, casting agents. Now, you know, there you go. Uh, you are the second Sex in the City alumnus to appear on this program. Really? Who's the first? Cynthia Nixon. Oh, I did my scene with Cynthia. You were the spaghetti guy? <laughs> what, what was it? No. No, I was, uh, I was uh, the guy who chewed his steak and spit it out. Steak. I moved right. to L.A. and uh, got an uh, eating disorder. Good, very special episode. We all learned a lot from that. Uh-huh. That's true. Any, I, mean, I feel like you did. Any plugs? Uh, listen to the majority report, I guess, or write the producers of Bob's Burgers and tell them you need more Hugo. More, that's... more Hugo. Listen to the majority report, which can be found by I think googling majority report usually just turns up whatever it is. Generally, yes. Or just Google Dave Rubin, and my name will pop up <laughs> if I've done my job. Google Dave Rubin. Listen to Dave Rubin on the majority report. Sam Cedar, thank you so much for joining I, us. My pleasure. Amazing. Thanks. Want to grab a drink? Oh, please. Yes, let's go. The sight of all these bleached teeth is blinding. No, I mean, grab something here. 
This place is known for its green tea infusions. Please, infusions? Could LA be any worse? Take off that hat, I'm gonna shoot you right now. <laughs> Actually, I really like it here. Hang on, what happened to the guy I used to share beers with and make fun of happy people? I know, I know. The thing is, I think I'm one of those happy people now. Wow. I mean, good for you. I, I know it sounds crazy, but I think I was just supremely unhappy in New York. I mean, I came out here and I let a lot of that old toxic anger go. I take things slowly, get outside. Ellie agrees with me. Miranda realized she was the one standing out in that room. She was the only angry New Yorker for miles. Hey, let's go for a hike. <laughs>